Hello and welcome to the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. Let's listen in. So welcome to this class. My name is David Bruner. If you don't know me, this is uh, the class on Long Story Short, which is the sermon series we're doing here at Knox Presbyterian Church. Um, The goal of that series is to familiarize you with essential parts of the biblical story. So we're not going to read the whole Bible from beginning to end, but we are going to hit many of the most essential parts of that book from Genesis to Revelation. Um, Becca and I joke sometimes that we ought to call this class the Bible's greatest hits um, because that's really what we're doing. We're taking some of the most crucial parts of it and digging in a little bit deeper than you might ordinarily get um, just by reading. Um, Okay. Since this is the first week we're doing this, I'm gonna take some time to kind of unpack a little bit what's going on, just address some housekeeping matters because I know there are some people that might have questions about how exactly all this works and I wanna make sure we're all on the same page. So if you'll permit, permit me, we'll do a little bit about that and then we'll dive into the class itself. Um, there are three Three textbooks for the course, right? We've talked about this. Many of you are probably familiar. So one is the Bible, which you should always bring to this class if you come. The other is the study guide, which is the little white book. This guy, right? Um, That'll tell you what to read and has some daily reflections for you. And the third one is this Essential Bible Companion that has more information about specific biblical books in case you wanna go a little bit deeper. I'm not gonna talk about this too much tonight, but it'll probably come in handy in coming weeks as we look at specific books and themes of the Bible. Um, This class on Wednesday nights is more a class than a small group, if that makes any sense. So I think of a small group as on the smaller side and having a lot of time for personal sharing and personal prayer, as well as Bible study. This class is not gonna have too much of that. Um, There's gonna be a lot more teaching in this class. I will probably do most of the talking, although I promise to try and share the talking as much as possible so you don't always wanna fall asleep. Um, You can also join a small group if you want. So if you're thinking, I love studying with Pastor Dave, but I also want a group where I can share personally about how this relates to my life and have people pray for me specifically, a small group is a great way to do that. If you want to join a small group, let me know and I will do what I can to hook you up with one of those. I have a strong pro-question policy in this class, pro-question. I am in favor of questions. So I wanna encourage you, always feel free to raise your hand when I ask for questions or when I don't ask for questions. You should feel free to interrupt me and if it's not a good time for a question, I will tell you. Questions are one way that a teacher, like me, is forced to make contact with reality. So I think of them as a benevolent, uh, good thing. So feel free to ask a lot of them. I especially encourage you to ask Questions like if you don't get something, if you're just like, hey, I don't know what that means, I've lost the thread here, feel free to ask that. um, Because if you feel that way, odds are someone else does too, and it'll help all of us. How many, are any of you confused? This class is um, gonna address the previous week's sermon. 
Does that make sense to all of you at this point? So, okay, I'm seeing a lot of heads nodding, so I won't belabor the point. So this class is always gonna go for the previous Sunday's sermon. That's what we're gonna be talking about. During the week, you can come. You're also gonna be reading scripture texts for the sermon that's to come. So you're talking about the previous week's sermon. Um, I'm gonna pass around um, a legal pad. If you don't mind just writing your name on here, um, that would be really helpful. I'm gonna create an email, um, just an email list of people who have come to this class so I can keep you updated on what's happening, what we're studying. Um, it's just an easy way to keep you in the loop about what's happening with this class. You don't have to put your email address or anything, just literally sign your name and you can pass it off. Um, let's see. You can also listen to this class via podcast. I hope that all of you will continue to come in person, um, but life happens and there are probably other people who wanna come to a class like this but may not be able to make it from time to time or ever. Um, this class is gonna be recorded and we're gonna make it available as a podcast for people to listen to. So um, that's a great way for people to get the benefit of this class without needing to show up in person. Um, so if people have questions about that, or if you want, hypothetically speaking, if you want someone to like walk you through the process of downloading a podcast on your phone, if that might be helpful to you, I'm happy to do that as well. Okay. That's it for housekeeping. Are there any questions about any of that stuff, about how long story short is gonna work? Anything of that nature? Perfect, it's the best possible answer. Okay, let me pray for us, and then um, I'll talk a little bit more about we're gonna, what we're gonna do tonight, and then I'll dive into the subject matter. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise um, for gathering us together tonight. Thank you for this time in which we can pause in the middle of our busy lives and study your word. We pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit would be among us to enlighten our hearts and especially our minds uh, to learn more about you and to put that into practice in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so... Um, in general, in this class, we're always going to be talking about a specific part of Scripture or a specific theme of Scripture. The sole exception to that is today. So we're sort of starting on an, on an exception, and then we'll do a bunch of different stuff. But today, we're not going to talk about a specific part of Scripture because we're talking about the Bible in general. That's the theme for today. What is the Bible? How does the, the Bible function in the life of the church? Jeff. It would be helpful if you brought a Bible, and if you don't have one, um, there are several in the pew that you can just grab, yes. But I would encourage you to bring your Bibles to this class because especially in coming weeks, we're gonna be looking at particular passages and talking about them, and it's helpful to have that with. Um, so the purpose of this specific class, tonight's class, is to ask what is the Bible and how does the Bible work? How does it function um, for us as Christians? So. This week we'll have a little bit more of a formal flavor, if that makes any sense, as opposed to, like we're not gonna spend a ton of time looking at a particular passage tonight. We're gonna be talking about the Bible in general more. Um, I have five points I wanna share with you. Um, let's see here. Okay, so you can see I've got some slides up here. 
Um, we'll, make, we'll make these available online as well if people are curious, but I find it's helpful as a teacher to have an outline. Um, first, because it helps you track with what I'm saying, and second, because it gives people hope that uh, maybe what I'm saying will eventually come to a conclusion. So five things I wanna try and say tonight are the Bible is, the Bible is a library, a book, inspired, the word of God, and authoritative. So um, those are sort of the five main points I wanna make tonight. So we're gonna see how far we can get through all of those. Um, okay. So let's dive in and start by talking about this first point. So the Bible is a library. This language is probably familiar to you from Becca's sermon this past Sunday. In many ways, I'm echoing what she said, but it's important to, to cover that ground. So when we talk about the Bible, the Bible is both a book and a library. And so what we're doing now is talking about the second part of that. The Bible is a library. What do we mean when we say the Bible is a library? The Bible is made up of 66 different books. It's made up of 66 different writings that vary widely according to many different factors. And you can see them up there. So the books of the Bible vary widely according to genre. Um, this might be obvious to some of you, but it's, it's actually quite important. So if you look at the, the biblical literature, there's Hebrew poetry in the Bible. There are letters in the Bible. So all of Paul's writings are letters to particular churches. And so they all start out by saying, dear Christians in so-and-so, so-and-so, it's your brother Paul, how you doing? And they all conclude by saying, I love you very much. Goodbye, Paul. Right? There's one, I think it's the book of Romans, where Paul finishes by saying, look at how big I have signed this letter with my own hand. Right? So you know he was, he was just scribbling it down himself. Or he had someone writing it down and then he signed it for him. Right? So you get letters or epistles in the Bible. You also get this fascinating genre of literature called the gospel which does not exist prior to the composition of the New Testament. Pretty much Christians invent a new literary genre called the gospel, of which we have four in canonical form, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So one really important thing to bear in mind when you're looking at the gospel is that the gospel, or, or looking at the Bible rather, is that the Bible varies widely in genre. Second, language. Um, so the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. One interesting question that we'll talk about in future weeks is why the New Testament happens to be written in Greek and not in Hebrew, since most of Jesus's early disciples were Jews. It's an interesting question. Then of course you, get, you also get the, the issue of biblical translations. How many of you read ancient Greek? None of you, right? So uh, I don't read ancient Greek either. I read it with the help of an English pony where it's like, it says this, and then here's the English. And I'm like, oh yeah, I kind of know what that word means. That's cool, right? So I can't read ancient Greek the way some people read English. Some people can, but not me. Um, whenever you read the Bible in, in English, you're reading a translation of the original Hebrew and Greek. And 
there are very reliable, um, wonderful translations out there, but they're still translations. And every once in a while, if you compare English versions of the Bible, you'll notice some important differences, and some translations are much better than others. Um, we, so for, for this sermon series, we're using the new revised standard version of the Bible, which is a contemporary translation that we recommend and endorse. It's the one we use to show you our readings during Sunday service. Um, really, any contemporary translation of the Bible is pretty good. If you're reading an edition of the Bible that was published when people still rode horses and buggies, that's probably when you wanna start throwing up a a red flag and say, okay, wait a second, I might want a more contemporary translation. Um, But the issue of language is very important. Uh, The biblical books vary widely in their date of composition. The oldest biblical books may have started to have been set down by around 2000 BC, which is very early. They may have circulated as an oral tradition long before that. So, and the newest uh, books in the New Testament may have been set down by 150 AD. So you can see there's a vast sweep of time, right? 2,000 years just in the period of the composition of the biblical writings, to say nothing of another 2,000 years between them and us. That's a, that's a great question. So Jeff's question was, when was the first Bible bound together? And you mean the, the Christian Bible, right? So in the New Testament, Jesus and his contemporaries already refer to the Old Testament as authoritative. So by the time, when Jesus is alive, they already have something like a canon or a set of writings for the Old Testament that are regarded as authoritative. So they start to be, the Old Testament writings appear gradually starting around 2000 BC. First, you get what's called the the Torah, right? The first five books of the Bible. And then there's a series of prophets, people like Isaiah, um, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, And then finally, a set of other writings probably develop last. The Christian canon, so most of the, I'm going to pull a number out of my hat here, and I think this is relatively accurate. The Christian canon, most of those writings probably appear within the first 200 years after Jesus' ministry. There's not an official New Testament like there's a bunch of book, books that get accepted by Christians right away in the first couple hundred years. And then there's a couple laggards that take a while to make it into the canon. Um, like the book of Revelation is actually one where people are like, we have to think on that one. <laughs> like, we don't know if we want that in the Bible or not. And then it, it kind of squeaks in at the very end. <laughs> um, so it's, there's probably an official biblical list of the New Testament, I, I think maybe by 300 or 400. I'll try and get a more specific answer for you. So. Sure, so his, his question again was, how is it distributed? How did people know about it? So this goes back to the question about why the New Testament is in Greek. So 
How many of you have heard of Alexander the Great? Right, many of us. So Alexander the Great is basically the reason the New Testament is in Greek. So the, the big thing that happens between the Old Testament and the composition of the New Testament is Alexander, who, as we all remember, traipses all over the Mediterranean world and conquers everything under the sun. And he's, he dies, he's subsequently replaced by the Roman Empire, but the Greek language was still a very common tongue that people in a wide variety of places spoke and understood. So if you wanted to be understood, what you did was write in Greek. So that's why the New Testament writings are in Greek. And what happened was simply that Christians were compelled by their faith to try and share the gospel in any way they could. Most often this was verbally, orally in person, but often what they did was write things down. So the apostle Paul would write a letter to the church in Corinth and he would send it to him, right? And then he would, um, they would copy it. And it, so, so someone would take Paul's letter and sit down and copy it longhand. And as you can imagine, it was a big pain in the butt to do and it was hard to get paper and ink, but they did it. So the earliest versions of the Bible that we have are frequently these individual New Testament books that are distributed and, and passed out among Christian communities? That's a great question. Thank you. Okay, let me keep going. So the Bible is a library. It is composed of 66 different books. That's the headline here, right? The Bible is also a book. This is the other side of that coin. The Bible is a book and the Bible is a library. Um, the Bible is one book which contains many different books. At bottom, it tells one story about the one God. And in particular, it tells us a story whose climax and center is Jesus Christ. So, um, if you talk to a, a Jewish person, for them, the Bible is just the Old Testament, right? They're going to tell you something different about the, about the purpose of the Bible. They would say something like, the purpose of the Bible is to tell us about God's relationship with his covenant people, Israel. Christians are going to say something different, partly because our Bible looks different. We accept a different set of scriptures as normative for us, and that includes the Old Testament and the New Testament. For us, the whole Bible is a witness to Jesus. And what happens, right, is that as the Jesus movement spreads and multiplies and takes shape throughout the ancient world, throughout the Mediterranean, there becomes there, uh, um, the writings of the Christian community multiply, and they are eventually some of these writings are selected and placed into a list that is called the canonical books. So there's this process by which the, the New Testament is formulated. Um, that's a process that happens quickly in the case of some books, slower in the case of others, um, and it comes to an end after the first several centuries of the church's history. Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm, I actually don't know. So the question was, how do the books of the Apocrypha enter into this? How many of you know what the Apocrypha is? One person. 
So um, Catholic Christians and Orthodox Christians have a slightly different Bible than we Protestants do. They have a few extra books. Um, and this includes things like Ecclesiasticus and the Book of Wisdom, yeah, Judith Tobit. Um, I remember at my seminary, Princeton, which was a Protestant seminary, there was a Catholic PhD student in New Testament, and he was a mischievous, fun-loving sort of guy. And so he preached in chapel one day, and he, they said, what, what do you want to preach from? And he said, I'd like to preach from the book of Tobit. And so he got up and preached from this book that Protestants regard as non-canonical, right? Um, and that was his way of rubbing it in our nose. And he made the president very angry, and it was, it was delightful. Um, so I, I actually don't know a lot about that, and I want to find out more about that, Peg. So um, essentially, Protestants have always maintained that the um, Protestants call them deuterocanonical, right? So not really canonical. <laughs> Semi-canonical would be another term for it. Right. That's correct. That. So um, Protestants have always maintained these books are helpful, they're useful, they shouldn't be canonical. I actually don't know where they draw that distinction from. Let me see if I can find out a little bit more and I'll get back to you. Um, okay. So there's this process of the formation of the canon, um, of a selection of canonical books. Um, another way of saying that the Bible tells one story is, um, to, you know, that we can summarize it, right? So people often summarize the biblical story, the story of Genesis through Revelation in something like this way. They'll say, well, the Bible is a story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That's a helpful way of thinking about the biblical story. So creation of the world, the fall of the world into sin, God's effort to redeem the world, which ultimately comes to fruition in Jesus Christ, and God's consummation of the redemption of the world. Um, the as yet deferred final um, completion of God's plan to set everything right in Jesus. So to under, the reason I mention all this, right, it's really important to think of the Bible as having a plot. Because <laughs> there's, you can get lost in the Bible, right? It's really easy to get discouraged or distracted and think, what the heck does this passage have to do with me and my spiritual life? So, uh, you know, you start out, if you read the Bible from beginning to end, you know, you read and you read and you get stuck in Exodus or Leviticus and they're talking a lot about the ritual laws and the decoration of the tabernacle and, and your eyes begin to glaze over, right? And you start to feel guilty. So one thing that's helpful is to ask yourself, okay, how does this passage in Leviticus relate to the overarching story that the Bible offers us? A story whose center is Jesus Christ. A story that's a story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So over the next several months, as you journey with us through the Long Story Short series, I want you to keep this question in your back pocket. And you know, it's, it's, this question is one of those break glass in case of emergency questions, right? How does this biblical text relate to the big story we find in the Bible? If you're able to answer that question, you won't get too far off track.
So the Bible is a book. The Bible is a book with, with a purpose. Um, the user's manual to my car has a purpose. Its purpose is to instruct me about the nitty gritty details of my car. So when a light comes on the dashboard and I begin to panic, as I do because I don't understand my car, I know that I can consult the user's manual and discover what that flashing light on the dashboard means. The Bible has a purpose. Its purpose is not, thank the Lord, to tell us about cars. Its purpose is to point us to Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the Bible, is to point us to Jesus Christ. So when I say that the Bible tells the story of Jesus, that it's a story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, the, the point of that story is to tell us about Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. That means that the purpose of the Bible is not some other things. And again, these are, these are things that Becca some, talked about them on Sunday, but it's important to touch base on them. Um, the purpose of the Bible is not history or journalism. So different parts of the Bible vary widely in this respect. It's difficult to make generalizations, but on the whole and for the most part, the Bible does not aim to provide an account of what happened that flies by modern standards of history or biography. So if you read a biography, right, if you're reading a biography of Winston Churchill or Barack Obama or Phil Jackson, how is chapter one of that biography going to start? It's going to start by saying Phil Jackson was born in blah, blah, blah. He was born in this hospital to these people at this time, right, many biographies start with, not with the subject of the biography, but with their parents and grandparents going back several decades. Now, two of the gospels start by telling us about Jesus' lineage, it is true, but they don't tell us, you know, what hospital in Jerusalem Joseph was born in. And they don't tell us who his employer was between the ages of 21 and 27, right? That sort of detail does not interest uh, the authors of, of the scriptures. Um, and if we seek to press the scriptures into that mold, we will wind up um, very unsatisfied and very frustrated. Um, this is not to say, of course, that the Bible does not contain historical truth. Um, I believe it does contain a good deal of historical truth, but that's not its purpose. Its purpose is to point us to Jesus. Um, there's a wonderful passage at the end of John's gospel where the author of John says something like, these things were written that you may know Jesus and have life in his name. There are a lot of other things that Jesus did that I didn't write down in this book. And I suppose that if I tried to write them all, there wouldn't be enough room in all the books in all the world. This book was written so that you may believe in Jesus and have life in his name. The end. And I've always loved that little codicil because it so clearly uh, indicates what John is after. He's not writing a biography to say, here's Jesus, believe in him if you want to or if you don't. He's writing um, a book, the goal of which is to say, hey, believe in Jesus, right? Get on board. Similarly, the purpose of the Bible is not scientific knowledge. Um, again, the, the Bible is not concerned with offering information that's relevant to scientific theories. There's a wonderful saying I heard once many years ago, the Bible tells us how to go to heaven. It does not tell us how the heavens go. And I've always liked that. I think that's true. 
Okay, questions at this point? I'm trying to wrestle with the purpose of the Bible is to point us to Jesus. But I almost like, when I think of the Bible, I think of almost like two Bibles. Yeah. And hopefully in the next weeks, I'll learn about the first 800 pages or whatever, which I have no. The Old Testament. Yeah, and it's almost like it's two different things. So how is the Old Testament pointing us to Jesus? That's a great question. So Don's question was, how does the Old Testament point us to Jesus? So how many of you feel like you are more acquainted with the New Testament than the Old Testament? Right, I see a bunch of hands. So the Old Testament, <laughs> the Old Testament is relevant in every way to the New Testament. It's absolutely essential and indispensable. Very early on in the history of the church, there's a guy named Marcion, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. Have any of you heard of him? So Marcion was judged a heretic by the early church, a teacher of falsehood, because he thought the Old Testament was garbage. <laughs> and he essentially said, okay, we're Christians, we have Jesus and we have the New Testament and we don't need the Old Testament, let's get rid of it. And the church rightly rejected his assessment and said, nope, we're not gonna do that. Get out of here with that nonsense. The, um, the Old Testament tells this, so essentially it tells the story of God's covenant with Israel and it looks toward tells the story of the prophets, the kings, and it looks toward the fulfillment of that covenant in a messianic figure. When Jesus rises from the dead, this is of enormous significance within the context of ancient Judaism because it meant that it was a way of um, it was a sign that he was the Messiah. He was the one that Israel had waited for. And a lot of the New Testament is negotiating the claim that Jesus is in fact the Messiah that the Jews had expected. Does that help answer your question a little bit, Don? Okay. It still, it still seems like two different books. Mm -hmm. Sure. Before and after. Yeah, I mean, so. It, they, yeah, they they are very different. Um, but I, I hope is it'll be let's let's continue. That's correct. Let's continue this conversation as as the weeks go by, and we'll see what else we can discover. So we're going to talk about inspiration next. So we've looked. Remember, there were five ideas, right? The Bible's a book, and the Bible's a library. So we've dispensed with those. So we got three left. So the next one we're going to talk about is the idea of inspiration. The Bible is inspired. Um, so what does it mean to say the Bible is inspired? So um, inspired is a word the Bible uses to talk about itself. Um, as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed from childhood. You have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This is 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. Um, so this is one of the places that the church goes when it wants to talk about the inspiration of scripture. Um, what does it mean for scripture to be inspired? So 
I think it's helpful to talk about two things. So the Bible is inspired first in its creation. God leads human authors, editors, and communities in the creation of the writings of the Old and New Testaments. So sometimes people in the church propagate this vision of the inspiration of the Bible as kind of divine dictation, right? That God appears or an angel appears to someone and says, right, write this down, right? Um, and um, that often is too simple a picture. Now, there are occasions, right? There are people like the prophets or even someone like Revelation like the author of Revelation who say, okay, so-and-so appeared to me and I wrote this down. But often, looking at the scripture, you can see very clearly that there's a particular process of writing and recording and editing that's going on. The process of creating the writings of the Old and New Testament might be conscious, like those prophets, right? Like Isaiah or Jeremiah, who very much thought of themselves as speaking for God, that process might be unconscious. So when Paul wrote his letters, he did not think, okay, I, Paul, am a really cool dude, and I'm going to write some letters that will be put into a big book and read at churches all over the world for thousands of years, and sometimes kids will fall asleep in church listening to my writings. That's not what he thought. But nevertheless, his writings were influential enough, powerful enough, succeeded in pointing people to Jesus enough that they were eventually incorporated into the canon. And the judgment of inspiration sometimes took years and sometimes may have taken centuries. So it was a very gradual process. It didn't happen right away. So I think we want to talk about the Bible as inspired in its creation. It also really helps to talk about the Bible as being inspired in its reception. What does that mean? It means God leads us, his people, to understand scripture rightly through prayer, community, and study. God leads us, the people of God, the individual and collective students of scripture to understand it rightly through prayer, community, and study. And the goal of that is teaching, training in righteousness, ultimately salvation in Jesus Christ. So sometimes you'll hear people talk about inspiration, the inspiration of scripture, in a way that seems to imply that when you read the Bible, what's going to happen is that the Bible is going to knock you over the head and immediately persuade you of what you should do or say. Um, and sometimes that happens, right? Every once in a while, you may have an experience where you're reading a Bible and immediately the, the penny drops and you think, okay, all right, Lord, I get it. I get what you're saying to me. Often, it is, it is um, the church's experience, it's certainly my experience that um, it's with study and prayer and patience and persistence that the word of God in a particular passage becomes clear to us. Sometimes, sometimes scripture is like a safe that you have to try and crack. <laughs> sometimes it takes a, a little bit of tenacity to get there. Okay. So 
I want to think of the Bible's inspiration as having a objective side and a subjective side. Okay, that's the third point. That was pretty brief. The next one's a little bit longer. Are there, um, are you all with me so far in what I said about inspiration being on the part of the text and on the part of the reader? Okay, all right. Here's where it gets really good. So fourth, the Bible is the word of God. What does it mean to you to say the Bible is the word of God? When we say that, what do we mean? This, there's no right or wrong answer to this. I'm just genuinely curious. God's intention. Okay. The Bible is God's intention. Anyone else want to add to that or say something else? Mm. Sure, sure. So uh, Sandy's comment was, okay, so there's a process of canonizing that goes on with the Bible. So the books we have are the result of a definite process and a definite choice that was made by people in the early church. Wow, who are we to say that they got it right? Um, how many, of you, have some of you heard of the Gnostic Gospels? Okay, several of us. So my... Yeah, yeah, so there, these are other gospels written by faith communities other than the ones that would eventually become the Christian church as we know it today. They tend to have a bunch of wild and crazy stuff in them. So like there's, there's one where on Easter Sunday, Jesus comes out of the tomb and he's like 40 feet tall. So they're a little bit loopy, but like... It, Right. Revelation is a little bit loopy as well. Um, so I, I think Sandy's posing a very fair question of what is it that... Um, did, it, did they make the right judgment, right? Why did they make the judgment? And why did they make the judgment that they made? Yeah, sure. That's, that's a good question. I think that hopefully what I'm going to say in a little bit will help, help with that one a little bit. Hmm. Okay, fascinating. Um, other takes on what is the word of God? Yeah. Well, you can go back to your auto manual. Sure. The people who wrote the manuals are not the people who actually produced the car. <laughs> and so they are, they are translating it for you that's their purpose. Sure. But the people who wrote the thing, I'm sorry, well, the authors right. are actually more like the people who did the car. That's how I'm thinking of it right at the moment. Sure, sure. So there's that process of, uh, there's a process of mediation, right, or even translation between the technical experts that made the car and the people that are explaining to us what's going on through the car manual. Sure, yeah, that's true, that's true. Okay, so um, 
let me clarify a little bit about what I think of when I think of the, the idea of the word of God. So um, I, I want to talk about the idea of the threefold word of God. So the idea of the threefold word of God comes from Karl Barth. Karl Barth is a Swiss dude. He lived in the 20th century. He was a reformed theologian. So he was part of the same Christian family that Presbyterians are part of. And I first encountered the idea of the threefold word of God in his writings. And he basically says, there's one word of God that we experience in three different ways. And it's a really helpful set of distinctions that he draws. So, so try and follow me as I say this. And in a moment, God willing, you'll be able to see it up all on the screen, which will probably help. So the first dimension of the word of God he talks about is Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. As it says in the gospel of John chapter one, Jesus is the word made flesh. So what we see there is this very bold, very direct identification of Jesus Christ with God's word. So that's the first sense of the threefold word of God. Number one, Jesus is the word of God. Number two, the second sense of the threefold word of God is Holy Scripture. People sometimes call Holy Scripture the word of God written. The word of God written. So, um, for instance, we, oh, there it is. It's back now. A miracle, right? Scripture, so number two, Scripture, the word of God written, which witnesses to Jesus Christ. Oh, for heaven's sakes. You scoundrel. Y'all, we're going to need a prayer intervention for this, uh, for this stuff. Um, so scripture is the word of God written, which witnesses to Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, scripture, and the third sense is actually preaching. Preaching is the third dimension of the word of God. People sometimes call preaching the word of God proclaimed. So you've got the word of God in flesh, the word of God written, and then the word of God proclaimed. So you can see that quotation up there that says the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. That's, that's actually from one of the, um, it's from someone in the Reformation, a famous theologian named Heinrich Bullinger said that. So this is part of the reformed tradition's strong emphasis on preaching. When a preacher gets up to proclaim the sermon, that's not simply meant to be an inspirational talk or an engaging story time. Hopefully it is those things. Lord knows there's nothing wrong with being engaging and many preachers could use a little help in that department. It is meant to be a repetition or a recapitulation of the biblical message itself. That's why in theory, the preacher should always read scripture as part of or prior to the sermon. Because the preacher needs to say, here is the, the text that I am expositing. Here is the text that my sermon stands upon and which is the basis for my message. Yeah.
Yeah, that's an interesting question. So Jeff's question was, why aren't a person's actions or words that are informed by scripture also considered the word of God, right? So I take it, Jeff, that behind your question, there's a certain concern about a narrowing of the scope of the Christian life, right? That if I'm, if I'm telling the good news to a friend who's going through a hard time and I'm praying with him and encouraging him, isn't that the word of God? Well, that's an interesting question. I have to think about that for a minute. I think I'm gonna give a very unsatisfying answer. I think in one sense, yes, and in another sense, no. <laughs> so if you, if you read the book of Acts, or if you read Paul's letters, he will talk about, he'll say, oh, by the way, please continue sharing the word with the people in your community. Please continue to share the word of God with them. And, and what he means is share the biblical message, share the good news about Jesus. And so I think we can certainly say in some ways that when you pass on the good news of Jesus to someone in word or deed that you are sharing the word of God with them. I think this idea of the threefold word of God is intended to talk about the ordering of the Christian community. So part of what I would say, right, is that these three things are all authoritative for the church as a whole, right? So the reason preaching is something that pertains to the whole body of Christ, which is why it's uh, terrible when preaching is terrible, <laughs> right? It's because everybody has to listen to it. Whereas individual conversations are of more particular or private concern. So I think in that respect, the word of God is um, focused on the things that affect everybody and that pertain to our common life. So what I want to say is that each of these three things, Jesus, the Bible, and preaching is the word of God, but not in the same way. They are all slightly different from each other. What this means is that the category of the word of God is sometimes wider than we assume. So often when people talk about the word of God in the church, what they mean is specifically the Bible, right? So-and-so, you know, is a, is a very biblical preacher. He really takes his stand on the word of God. That's often the sense in which we use it and it is taken to be exhaustive. But in fact, within Christian theology, the word of God has at least these three uses. And I think that is helpful. <laughs> Furthermore, this idea of the threefold word of God of Jesus, scripture, and preaching implies a certain relationship between the three. So Jesus and the Bible are both the word of God, but they are not identical. The Bible is not the word of God in, the, in exactly the same way that Jesus is the word of God. The Bible is not the word of God in the, exactly the same way that Jesus is the word of God. And the Bible is the word of God insofar as it points to Jesus Christ. 
insofar as it points to Jesus, the word made flesh. So number two is the word of God because it points to number one. Are you with me on that? Does that make sense? If you have a question, go ahead and ask. Yes, Beth. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> uh huh. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, good. That's a, that's a wonderful observation. So Beth, part of Beth's question is, okay, if we say that the word of God is primarily Jesus, what do we do with all the times that God speaks in the Old Testament? Which is a very perceptive question. So Indeed, I would never want to say that God is not speaking in, in the Old Testament. So God, the God of the Bible is a very talkative God. He's constantly saying things to people. If he were in first or second grade, he would constant, constantly be getting shushed by his teacher. Um, and so we see, for instance, that God appears to Moses and commissions Moses to speak for him. We see constantly throughout the prophets right? What do the prophets say? They say, the word of the Lord came to me and the word of the Lord told me to come to all of you and to tell you blah, 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 blah. So what I would want to say as a Christian is that God is indeed speaking in those situations. And in some, in some way, the message that those humans were called to preach has to do with Jesus, that the content of their message is in a hidden way. It's Jesus. Right now on the surface of it, that doesn't have anything to say about Jesus, but I think that's where, that's where it's pointing toward, right? That's where the, it establishes a trajectory that leads us toward Jesus. Um, yes, that's the gloss I would want to put on it. That's a very vague, very general answer. Um, and we can drill down and look at more specific things, but that's what I would want to try and say, because yes, you're right. God does speak throughout the Old Testament. Yes. And the, the at least on the surface, it doesn't seem to have it much to do with Jesus. Mm -hmm. Right, well, and, and right. Right, so quite often, yeah, quite, quite often the prophets were very aware of saying, this is the message God's inspired me to, to share with the people, and they would write it down themselves or authorize a scribe to do it or someone close to them would write it down. Yeah. Okay. Jesus and the Bible are not identical. Neither, in the, neither are the Bible and preaching. The Bible is not the word of God in the same way that Jesus is the word of God. The Bible is the word of God because and insofar as it points to Jesus Christ. That is its purpose. So let me lay this quotation on you and see if this helps make it a little clearer. So how many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis? Okay, so many of you have. He's a wonderful writer, Chronicles of Narnia, many wonderful works of apologetics. He said this, it is Christ himself, not the, not the Bible, 
who is the true word of God. The Bible, read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him. So I think this is, this is helpful. So um, I don't intend to deny that the Bible is the word of God. Far from it. Please don't hear me saying that. The Bible is God's word and I treasure the Bible. But what we need to be doing when we read the Bible is dig underneath the surface, as it were, to look for Jesus, who we believe by faith is present on every page, to look for his, his redemptive love at work under every page. Often it's very hard to do that. And when the church gets into trouble, in my experience, one way it gets into trouble is because it assumes, okay, um, the Bible says X, Y, Z on page 637. And because that's in the Bible, we need to do just that. And that's the end of it. And there, that moment of saying, okay, how does this relate to the larger story? How does this relate to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? That gets left out of account. So I think this is a, a helpful reminder, right? So Jesus is the word of God, strictly speaking, and the Bible is the word of God in as much as it points us to Jesus. Questions or comments about this? Yes. Yes. So th think about, so the book of Exodus is a really good example. So the book of Exodus is a really good example. So when Jesus celebrates the last supper, right? What he does is explicitly portray himself as um, the new Passover lamb. And he essentially says through his words, you know, when he says, this is my body given for you, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, what's he doing? He's hearkening back to Moses and the Passover lamb whose blood is put over the lintel of the door. And he's saying, I too will be put to death to liberate the Hebrew people. And, and, but not just the Hebrew people, the entire world, not from Egyptian slavery, but from bondage to sin and death. And so there's a very explicit callback, if you will, to the book of Exodus. And when we Christians today read the book of Exodus, we need to be mindful, we want to be mindful first of our Jewish neighbors and how they understand that passage, but also we want to be able to say, okay, I'm gonna put on my Christian lenses and look at this passage and, and see it as a comment on what Jesus will do. Does that make sense? Okay. So there's a wonderful tradition of like, right, so part of what I'm sensing is that fleshing out the kind of biblical interpretation I'm talking about with some more examples might be helpful. So um, I'm trying to think of a good example, right? So in a couple months, we're going to talk about Joshua. How many of you know the book of Joshua? A little bit. Kind of a challenging book, right? 
So Joshua is where some of the ideas of um, holy war come from in the Bible. So in the book of Joshua, the Israelites enter the promised land. They move in, they take possession of it. And there's this, the famous battle of Jericho. Some of you know the old African-American spiritual. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. So when that happens in Joshua chapter six, God explicitly (laughs) tells, I shouldn't laugh, it's not funny. God tells Israel, I want you to wipe out and exterminate everybody who lives in that city. Now that passage poses a challenge for us as Christians, right? So part of what I mean when I say, we have to say Jesus is the word of God first and foremost, and then the Bible is the word of God in a secondary sense is we have to be able to say, we have to take passages like that and, and measure them against the biblical stories of Jesus' life and ministry, right? Which is to say, Jesus' life and ministry trump the example of that story, right? So for Christians, that kind of holy war where you wipe out men, women, and children should never be authorized, which kind of seems like a common sense conclusion, except that some people don't agree with that, right? Um, And there's there's a wonderful, there's a wonderful tradition in the church of interpreting passages like that one in Genesis allegorically. So instead of saying, okay, when God tells Israel to wipe out the Canaanites, Let's not interpret that literally. Let's interpret that as an allegory for waging war on our own sin. And what we are called to do is not destroy our enemies in the physical world, but we are called to wage ruthless war on our own sin (laughs) and our own bad habits and our own pride and our own resentments and wipe them out completely so that we can be pure before God. And I think that's, an, that's such a, to me, that is a more, that might be a wild and crazy and unusual way of reading that passage, but I actually find it a helpful way of making peace with a passage of the Bible that would otherwise be pretty challenging, right? Um, you know, I'm not gonna tell my kids, hey, go and do exactly what Joshua 6 says to do, because that's not, I don't think that's what Jesus wants them to do. Sure, it was. I, but I, 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 so that's another way of putting distance between us and the biblical text, right? So Sandy's claim, Sandy was saying, okay, this is cultural. Um, I think it, it certainly was. Um, I think the problem is that because it's part of sacred scripture now, there are plenty of people who would say, well, <laughs> That makes it okay, right? If it's in the Bible. So so like this comes up in American history, right? When the colonists are moving west and taking land away from Native Americans, they often think of themselves as the Israelite people entering into the land of Canaan and saying, God has called us to enter into this land and the Canaanites are just, we got to just get rid of them, right? Which is, again, that's strong stuff. I'm not saying anyone here is proposing that. But I think that sort of misreading of the Bible is actually not as rare in Christian history as you would hope it would be. 
And what I like about the threefold word of God is that it provides us some leverage to place Jesus at the center of our biblical interpretation, right? If Jesus Christ is the word of God first and foremost, and the Bible is the word of God insofar as or because it points us to him, I think we can trust that the Bible is going to point us to him, but also push back against some of those other interpretations that license behavior that Jesus would not want. I can't tell if I've made this clearer for you or just more confusing. Yeah. 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 You know what I mean? And so it can be, it's hard to get down to some detail. Plus we have the cultural things and goodness, our culture now and technology and all that sort of veggie daily. Yeah. You know, it, it's all confusing. But to me, it just seems more like God was extraordinarily patient. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, absolutely. So Yeah, I mean so the the question was about might we interpret scripture as the story of a relationship between God and his people? that a, a fair way of summarizing what you're getting? And I, I actually think that's really helpful, right? I mean, so, yeah, I don't disagree with much of what you said at all. Like, I think, so in Genesis and Exodus, you see God establishing a covenant people, the Jews, and then, you know, there's the beginning of this long, difficult history between God and his people where he, God wants them to do certain things, and they do it for a while, and then they fall down and make mistakes, and then he sets them right again, and then they fall down and make mistakes. Right? Yeah. And, and so the... Yeah, that's, that's exactly where I was going, right? So I think if you think of the Bible as a story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, it includes that history of the relationship between God and Israel. Right, and, and all of the high points and the low points, of which there are many. Okay, um, anything else that I can help you with at this point? The Old Testament, it boils 
776 pages down in two sentences. <laughs> for, for, for but is it helping you to find the reason for Jesus and the reason that he, God came to earth in the flesh? Kind of yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think one way to think of it is that I, I think it, it it provides all the necessary background to understand Jesus and why he's the Messiah, and it's it's the history of God's, it, you know, the story of God's relationship with Israel. So if you think so. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation, right? Creation and fall are all in the, the Old Testament, along with a lot of other stuff that's very wonderful, all the prophets and the kings and the priests. But, you know, if you think of it as having those four acts, only, um, only the first, only the last two are in the New Testament. So to get the full picture in all four acts, you need the Old Testament. Um, so we're um, about out of time for tonight. So let me let me just ask if there are any other um, if there are any other questions of clar clarification or um, understanding that I can um, take at this time. Will you be summarizing this and sending it out in an email to us? To I I can if you'd like me to. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And were you going to be sending out a list of questions on Fridays? Yes. So on Fridays, there will be questions for small groups that I'll mail out, and those are for next week. Yeah. Okay. So you'll get those on Fridays. I don't plan on that unless you'd like them. Um, okay. Sure. If you want them, let me know, and I'm happy to send them to you. They're not secret or anything. So. Are they going to be out of my this time? Um, they'll be on the website, and I make the, I email them to folks, but I don't know if they're printed or out in the out in the comments or anything. Yeah. Sure. Well, I do, of course. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, in some ways that's begging the question. Um, I think they are low quality from the point of view of someone who's, um, who believes in that threefold word of God that I talked about, right? So let me, get, let me give you another example, okay? So pull out your Bibles real quick if you've got them. So this is another doozy of a biblical passage, and I'm not trying to like, I don't want to shock anyone or anything, but this is, this is another example of what I'm talking about. So look at Psalm 137. Psalm 137. So give me an amen when you found it. Okay. So this is a beautiful psalm. What does it say in its title in your Bible? 
Israelites in captivity. Does anyone have anything else? Lament over the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what mine says. Anyone else have anything different? Psalm 137. <laughs> Psalm 137. <laughs> Beth has the no frills Bible. Um, okay, so I'm just going to read this out real loud and you can follow along. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our harps. For our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors asked for mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So this is a psalm that's written from the point of view of Israel in exile. This is a really important part of the biblical story that we'll get to in a month or so, when Israel is ultimately, they form a kingdom centered in Jerusalem. They're very strong and powerful for a while, and eventually they get conquered and defeated by Babylon and dragged off to exile in Babylon. So this is, this is written by people who have been exiled from their home. Um, verse five, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, so this is talking about the day when Jerusalem fell. How they said, tear it down, tear it down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator. Happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Right, Peg went, ugh. How about that for an ending to a psalm, right? Don't read that on Sunday. Um, when I was in seminary, we had to take speech class and we had to practice reading out loud various parts of the Holy Bible. And my instructor must not have liked me because he gave me this psalm to read. And I was like, through verse eight, I was just killing it. I was going, I was like, yes, this, this is awesome. This is the word of God. I love this. And then I got to verse nine and I was like, oh, I don't know how to end this now. And I like, just like I whispered it and kind of got off the, the pulpit as quickly as I could. So when I talk about, there's a way of talking about interpreting scripture of high and low quality interpretations of scripture that can um, be a little arrogant, that can be a little cocksure, that can foreclose the um, diversity that you'll find within the body of Christ. And I don't wanna do that. When I talk about low quality interpretations of scripture, part of what I mean is people who look at passages like this and think because the Bible says that it's okay, right? So I'm, I'm talking about really more extreme sorts of, of low quality interpretations. Now, this is America, right? You know, I, I think there are many people in our culture who basically function with an approach to the Bible that says, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And I think they don't quite know what to do with passages like this. Um, what I'm trying to do is give us all some tools to be able to respond faithfully to challenging passages like this one, which are frankly are the sort of thing we're gonna encounter in this course. Um, there's a lot of passages that are so wonderful and beautiful that will just touch your heart right from the word go. And there are other, other ones in here you'll have to wrestle with. So that's part of what the threefold word of God does for me.
So I appreciate your asking that question. Anything else that I can clarify for you? I feel like some of you are like wowed at how profound this has been and others of you are just confused. All right, why don't we call it here? Thank you all so much for being here. I look forward to seeing many of you next week. Next week, we're gonna talk about creation. So it's Genesis one and two. I invite you to come back then for more discussion of the Old Testament. Thank you. This has been the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.